glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Stand if you would, and we'll read these first seven verses. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, <clears throat> beginning in verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he, that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Thank you. You may be seated. There's a wealth of information. It's the word of God. So there's a wealth given. I do believe, and I don't believe this way the Lord's leading. There are phrases we could take. For instance, he commends them for not fainting. You could preach an entire message tonight on not fainting, not being weary and well-doing and not fainting. We'll touch on that. But tonight we just want to stay focused on this church and its needs I do want to remind us of how the Lord's communicating with His churches, all seven of the churches. He communicates the same way. I would ask you this. Who's giving the message to the church? The Lord Jesus Christ, an angel, the Apostle John, or an epistle? What was that? Amen. All the above. The Lord Jesus Christ signified it to John by His angel. John was told to write it in the book and told to give that book to the churches. Now, I don't see that God's communicating any differently today. You say, does Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church have an angel? I would say on the pattern of Scripture, yes. Uh, we don't need modern-day apostles. We have the record of Scripture. In fact, that's insinuated at the end when the Lord Jesus says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto, not just one church, but to the churches. Meaning, there's a message in this. If you have an ear to hear, there's a message for you tonight. One of the things we see here is the Holy Spirit of God taking the same epistle, I think we mentioned this last week, but making particular application to each particular church. And then by the end of each one of these, he that hath an ear, that's to the individual. The Holy Spirit of God works and communicates and ministers to his people through the local church institution, but then he makes personal application. We'll see that throughout. It's it's wise of us to learn how God communicates with us. That away, we don't fall into the trap of, well, that couldn't be God. How many times have we knocked on someone's door, carrying the gospel in our hand and in our mouth, and someone acts like, well, if God would speak to me, I would listen. And you want to go, duh, bells and whistles, a stranger just walked up on your door with a Bible in his hand, and what are you looking for? You know, are you looking for lightning from heaven, or maybe you hand somebody a gospel track, I don't, you know, that's not the way God works, but... You know, the Lord uses common everyday people to do the miraculous work. And so we would be wise 
to learn and discern how God does speak to his people and how he communicates so that we can be attentive to him and hear when he speaks to us. So let's begin here tonight as far as our outline is concerned in verse 1 as to how the Lord presents himself to the church at Ephesus. He reminds them that he's given this to the angel, but he reminds them who the message is ultimately from. He says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he, meaning the person that's speaking to you, signified by this angel, but the person that's speaking to you is your head, Jesus Christ. These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, uh, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He is reminding the church of Ephesus who he is. Now this ties back into church uh, into chapter 1 where he talks about holding those seven stars which are the seven angels of the seven churches in his right hand. With that in mind, I want to go ahead and go back to Hebrews chapter 1 just to remind us of the Lord Jesus' relationship to the angels. How many of us understand, for instance, uh, that the LDS religion would teach that Jesus is at par with the angels in that he and Lucifer are supposed to be brothers. That is what the LDS religion teaches. The Lord Jesus is not at par with the angels. He and Satan do not have equal power. The Lord Jesus Christ created Lucifer. He is his creator. We must remember that. Now, if we're going to be part of a church, it is good for us to remember where Christ is in regard to authority. There's none higher than Jesus Christ save God the Father, and that's because of the order of the Godhead. All things have been placed under his feet. And again, we touched on this last week, but Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory, and the express image, I've underlined that in my Bible, the express image of his person, meaning Jesus Christ is the full and complete and only image of God. God in human form is who Jesus Christ is, God in the flesh, the express image of his person. Another way of putting it, Colossians says he's the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All right, it says, And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, verse 4, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, meaning he already existed, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him, which is what they did at his birth, and it's what they did at his resurrection. Amen? Verse 7, And of the angels he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. If you ask someone that's part of a cult, uh, Is Jesus God? They'll say something, Well, he's the Son of God. Well, right here, God the Father called God the Son, capital G, God, meaning we are one in authority, amen? And that's what the Lord Jesus is reminding the church of Ephesus of here in Revelation chapter 1. May I say, I have no doubt that in 21st century America, we need reminded tonight of the authority and headship of Jesus Christ. He is not, he is not... I thank God that God became a man and that he's not ashamed to call us brethren. Aren't you thankful for that? That speaks of the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. But may I say this, 
while God decided to descend from heaven and take on human flesh, no man is going to drag him off his throne and bring him down. Because when we do that, you know what we're doing? We're trying to ascend to who he is. And false religion always belittles the person of Jesus Christ, brings Jesus down below the level he is. He reminds the church at Ephesus, I've got the angels in my right hand, meaning they do what I tell them. The angels do what I tell them. Isn't it good to be reminded tonight that the character of Jesus Christ has not changed? We can look at a wicked world. The church is planted. The Lord Jesus prayed explicitly in John 17 to the Father, I pray not that you take them out of the world, but that you would sanctify them through your truth. Meaning, Father, I'm asking you not to remove them from the world, but to lead them in the world as an influence for me and to purify them and, and purge them and separate them through your word, but I'm not asking you to remove them. So the Lord has intentionally left his church in a sin-cursed, sin-filled world, and if we're not careful, we look at the circumstances around us and forget who he is. Just like Peter when he's walking on the water. He stepped out of the boat believing that Jesus was the Christ and had power to give him the ability to walk on water, but the moment he began to observe the waves, what did Peter do? He sank. The same is true with the church. The moment we forget that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, that he is no longer on the cross, he is not in the tomb, he's not in a manger, he is today seated in heaven on the right hand of the Father, coming again when it is time. When we forget that, we will fail to have the victory that he has for us in a very practical way. So the Lord's reminding them, I hold the seven stars in my right hand, and I'm the one who walk in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. It just... It's a reminder to them, and whoever has an ear to hear, it's a reminder to that person that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one that every one of us is directly accountable to. I'm going to, I'm going to emphasize a theme again. Sanctification. You know what sanctified living is? Let's, let's be very general and broad in this definition. You can start giving a hundred examples of what sanctified living looks like in the life of a believer, and if we're not careful, someone else just duplicates that. So let me, let me put it to you this way. The Lord Jesus Christ saved me. There are things I know that he hates. There are things that I know are not in in meaning of his approval. So I'll just give you some examples in my life. We know that the Lord is against unclean, immoral, fornicating living. And so when my heart got right with the one who died for me and said, you know, I want, I, I submit to your authority. You can lead my life. There were some things that I knew in my life that were influencing me toward things that he is against that I said, that have to go. One of the things I remember is some of the music that I allowed my ears to listen to promoted the very things that Jesus said come out of a filthy heart. And so in response directly to him, knowing he is against that, I have something influencing my life to live a way that would displease the one who died for me. I, in response to Jesus Christ, said, I will not listen to that kind of music. Along comes somebody else and says, well, if I don't listen to that kind of music, I am holy. Not necessarily. That is unholy music. But if you're not listening to it simply because somebody told you how you shouldn't listen to that, and it's not, I know Christ is displeased with that, and I want to please Him, that's not really sanctified living. Sanctified is not only separating from something, it's separating to someone. I will separate from that sinful activity because I love Him because He loved me. Does it make sense? I'm not going to engage, I'm not going to use my tongue to speak those words, not because that will make me righteous, but because Christ has saved me and made me righteous, I don't want words that are displeasing to his ears coming off of my tongue. And we need to be reminded tonight, and this is what the church at Ephesus was reminded of, 
I'm the one that's walking in the midst of the seven churches. Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church is not ultimately accountable, and you know this, so I'm beating the dead horse, I suppose. You're not ultimately accountable to Pastor Neil. You and I are ultimately accountable to Jesus Christ. This is his church, and he's the one walking in the midst of every church. That's why we believe that each church individually is directly accountable to Jesus Christ. We are accountable to him for the kind of doctrine that's in this church. We are accountable to him for the deeds that are in this church. Why? Because it's his church. He's the one walking in the midst. He's the purchaser of this church. He is the maintainer of this church. And he's reminding the church at Ephesus of who they were ultimately accountable to. May I say this. Nothing will chill the love of a believer more than getting focused on the world around you and getting your focus off the Christ above you and in the midst of you. When you and I get focused on people, you will soon stop serving Christ. You might be able to maintain the mechanics and the motions of a Christian life, but you will not and cannot maintain a heart for Jesus Christ if you and I get focused on people. I hope you hear that tonight. Some of the best advice you'll ever get from anybody else that's trying to help you serve Jesus Christ. We cannot focus on people, including people who know the Lord and love Him and serve Him. We must keep our focus on Him. When Peter says, Lord, what about John? What did Jesus say to Peter? <laughs> if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. The Lord begins with the church at Ephesus, and you can see the connection between how he characterizes himself and what their problem was. They had gotten their eyes off of their Savior. <laughs> they, were, they were mechanically sound. You would be happy to be a member of the church at Ephesus. They were a doctrinally sound church. They were a busy church working for God. They were a church that had been faithful over the years. This is the kind of church anybody would be happy. If you love Christ, you'd be happy to be a member of the church at Ephesus. But we'll get down to the fact they did have something going on that needed correction, just like most of us do. But the characterization of Christ, he who holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, that deals with his power, and then he who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, that has to do with his preeminence. May I say this, every church split that I'm aware of gets almost always, almost always boils down to this. People getting focused on this is what I want my church to be. I want this in our church. This is what I want in the church. No, this is his church. He walks in the midst. We need to be what he wants us to be. Number two, the comprehension of Christ. He begins to say what he knows about this church. Verse two, by the way, it's all a glowing report until we get down to verse four. But he says, I know thy works. He's going to give a list of, I think I counted nine things that he knows about this church. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear with them uh, which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars and hast borne and hast patience and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. If it stopped right there, we'd say, whoo, what a church. And they were, by the way. Here's something the Lord taught myself years ago through Revelation 2 and 3. Here's what I'm prone to do. Let's say someone's got works and patience and labor and they, they are disciplined in defining that, it, that which is evil and abhorring that which is evil, cleaving that which is good, testing false prophets, rejecting their message. Uh, these are a people that have labored and then labored again, and they have been patient and they have endured and they have borne the burden. I mean, they, they got all these nine characteristics that are going for them, but in the midst of that, they've lost their love for Christ. You know what I'm, you know, I'm going to focus on? Those people don't love the Lord like they should. And that's probably all I would say. 
I don't know if you're like me, but if you're not careful, we'll look at this. Uh, the Lord is a just judge. Or I might do the other side of it. I might say, well, no, they don't love the Lord like they should, but look at all that they're doing, right? I am prone to say one of those negates the other. Either all the good that they're doing, then we don't need to worry about the one thing that he has against them. Or they got this one thing the Lord has against them. All that other stuff doesn't count. It's no good. If you don't love the Lord like you used to love him, none of your works count. The Lord says, no, I've got this about you that's good. I commend you for this. This gives us a glimpse of what the judgment seat of Christ is going to look like. All these nine things, gold, silver, and precious stones, they're wonderful. But you've stopped loving me like you used to, and that's bad. How many of you know that one person, by the way, was he judging them or judging their works? He said, I know thy works. They're already judged righteous. They're his people. They've been bought with the blood. I know thy works. May I say this? The Lord can look up and you, up and down you and I and say, you know what, Nevin, this is wonderful. You're doing this and I am so pleased with that work that you're doing. I know you serve and you're laboring for my name's sake. And I know this, but you know, while all this is right and good, at the same time, you've got something that's not right. Is it possible for one person to have right and wrong in their life at the same time? And the Lord is a righteous judge. He won't ignore the wrong because of the right, and he won't ignore the right because of the wrong. He can say both. This is all right, and this is wrong, and I'm going to address both of those things. And he starts by commending them for a number of things. He speaks of their deeds, first of all, in Revelation 2. 2, He said, I know thy works. I find it interesting. He uses works repeatedly. By the way, there are those today. (laughs) It's very interesting to me. There's a popular crowd, and it's almost like good works aren't good. You know, it's like if you preach on doing good works where you're immediately preaching some kind of legalism. Legalism is teaching that good works make you righteous. But friend, let's be reminded tonight, and I know this is old hat to you, but we are saved unto good works. The Lord Jesus does want us to work for Him. He saved us. He called us into His yoke. That's an implement of labor. But we labor not for salvation. We labor from the assurance of it. Because I know what he's done for me. So the Lord, the first thing he says, I know thy works. Remember, that's what's going to be judged at the judgment seat. You're saved. You've already been judged righteous under the blood of Jesus Christ. But our works are going to be judged whether they be good or whether they be bad. So he says, I know thy works. That word work there simply means to toil, to do something, exerting energy for, to accomplish a purpose. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, uh, the, the, the author of Hebrews commends the Hebrew believers who had some problems But he says this in Hebrews 6.10, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which you have showed toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Verse 11, We desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end that you be not slothful but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. There are those who have so got a hold of the fact or have so emphasized the fact that salvation is not by works that they discourage Christians from working. That's not good. The Lord says, when you work for me, I notice it. I take note of it. I won't forget it. I am pleased with your work. So I know that works. By the way, there's another reminder there. What if nobody else knows your works? What if you're laboring every day much in prayer and God, you've got, you say, you know what? I don't really know how to do anything else for the Lord right now, but man, I am really giving myself to prayer. You know what? He knows your works. That's what matters at the end of the day, that he knows our works. But then he uses another word. He says, I know thy works and thy 
labor. If you had a grammar teacher, she might dock you here for being redundant. But it's not redundancy. I mean, it's no different words mean different things. I'm no English teacher by far, but look up the definition. They're not the same word. Not in English and not in Greek. Labor has the idea of toiling to the point of pain. Almost like a woman in labor. It's one thing to put your hand to the plow. It's another to keep your hand on the plow when you got blisters. Work is doing a deed. Labor is the it is the the combination of many works over a period of time. It's continual. It's something. It's the aggregate of your works, if you would, that have caused you. They've cost you pain. It's toil to the point of costing you personally pain and, and, and difficulty. The Bible says of Epaphroditus in the book of Colossians that he was nigh unto death for the work of the Lord. Because he was laboring on behalf of the Colossian people, it had cost him his health. That's the kind of labor the church at Ephesus had been involved in. We have a Christianity in America today that knows very little of sacrifice. Very little. I was hearing, I've got a new favorite podcast. I, I, I'm very picky about the ones I listen to, but it's about missions. And my boys have been hearing me talk about it. A missionary the other night from Uganda was listening to his uh, to his testimony and some, it was a, a question and answer interview type thing and he was explaining how he's training his preacher boys in Uganda and he said when they want to start a church he says that's fine you can do that but you're going to have to provide, you're going to have to get the transportation there. He said he had, had a young man who was burdened for a community. He wanted to start a church and he said I didn't just hand him everything he needed. I said okay go do it. The man rode his bicycle 30 kilometers one way multiple times a week to start a church in that community. We can't get people to drive 15 minutes to be in church three times a week just to sit on a padded pew and listen. Huh? American Christianity knows very little of sacrifice. We think sacrifice we see, dollar sign, A-C-R-I-F-I-C-E, dollar signs everywhere. It's about giving money. That's the cheapest sacrifice we can make. I understand giving sacrificially is a sacrifice. Don't misunderstand me. But the fact of the matter is, labor is sacrificial work for the Lord. I'm going to work and I'm going to serve the Lord and it's going to cost me my hobby. It's going to cost me perhaps my comfort. It's going to cost me perhaps I go on the foreign field to labor and I get sick. And it's going to co- people say, "Oh, you shouldn't go on a mission trip. You might you might get kidnapped." Might. But you sure won't get the gospel out there if you're sitting here. You cross the street, they might cuss you out. They probably will, but somebody's got to give the gospel. Labor is, I'm going to work to the point it cost me. You know what about the church at Ephesus? They'd done that. They had blisters. <laughs> They'd worn out some shoes, perhaps. They, they had labored to the point of it causing them pain to serve God. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. That word patience deals with cheerful endurance. That's what that word means. Cheerful endurance. <laughs> Not just endurance, enduring gladly. When you're laboring and it's hurting and you continue to labor, it requires... Patience. You know what the Lord's what a wonderful church. Work, they labored. So he knew their deeds, that's their work. He knew their diligence. Their labor and their patience speaks of diligence, meaning they weren't just going to do it until it was difficult. They were going to stay at the work in in spite of pain, in spite of difficulty. These are all things the Lord is pleased with this church about. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. By the way, you know what he never you know what he never says as far as I'm in these churches, and I know your numbers. I know your attendance last Sunday and I know you're giving because that's not really what he's looking at. He's looking at what sort of work, right? 
we put a big emphasis on, and I say we, there are times in the Bible God emphasizes numbers, but you remember what David got in trouble for? Counting when he wasn't supposed to. <laughs> One of the things he got in trouble for was counting because sometimes we want to emphasize numbers because it inflates the image of ourself. And, and, and then, by the way, just to be fair, easy for me as a preacher tucked away in a little church someplace to say that, a lot harder for a guy whose numbers are bigger, right? But thank God for faithful people that understand it's not about uh, it's not about the outcome from man's point of view. I don't know how many people were getting saved because of their work. I don't know how many people were getting saved at church because of their labor and their patience. What I do know is the Lord said, you're working, you're laboring, you're patient, you're diligent. I noticed that and I am pleased with it. He is commending them. And so then he goes on to commend them. He said, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. You know what he's commending them for? Intolerance. How thou canst not bear them which are evil. We are told in this day that we live in, the only thing that's intolerable is being intolerant. I kid you not, if you've read a secular humanist at all in our news reporting any place, they'll say, we will not tolerate people who don't tolerate people that are different. I've literally read them use that language. We won't tolerate this. I thought, wait, 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 wait. I thought you preached tolerance. And if you're going to be tolerant, you've got to tolerate everybody, including the intolerable. Right? I want to hold a position I can be consistent with anyway. You know what the Lord's saying? I commend you for not being able to put up with those who are evil. Meaning, the Gnostics had come in most likely and they'd said, no, not around here. You're teaching false doctrines, destroying lives. You're not going to bring that junk here. They were not going to tolerate that which was evil. Those who wanted to spread had the doctrine of Balaam. He'll rebuke that later in one of the other churches. They had the doctrine of Balaam, meaning you're teaching people to be immoral in the name of prophecy, in the name of preaching. You're pre- preaching doctrine that promotes immorality. Not, not at the church at Ephesus. You're not going to be here. No, 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 not going to happen. It seems to me that they had taken heed to Paul's warning in Acts 20. They had taken heed to themselves and to the flock over which the Holy Ghost had made them overseers. And when the wolves showed up, they said, take a hike. I got news for you. And again, I'm going to be very careful because this can turn into callousness. But there are people that I intentionally try to get to stop coming here. Say, pastor, be thankful. (laughs) Be thankful. And don't don't put any names in your mind. I'm not talking about any one person in particular right now. So don't don't imagine anything. But there are people that have left here and it's what needed to happen because they were spreading false doctrine. Because they're going to devour God's people. And so we need as a church to have a mentality that says we love people but we hate evil. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. The church at Ephesus had done it. He said, I commend you. You're not able to bear. You will not put up with those that are evil. You're not willing to bear with them, meaning you're not willing to partake of their sin, as Paul warned Timothy not to do in 1 Timothy 5. He said, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles. 2 Corinthians 11 warns of false apostles who who are coming as angels of light. We have a new message you've never heard. You really won't understand this if you alone read your Bible. You need me to shed light on things. You know what? You don't need anybody to shed light on your Bible. You need your Bible to shed light on people and on yourself included, right? When somebody says, oh, I have truth that will shed light on Scripture, you've probably never heard anything like this. At which point you say, no, and I don't ever want to. You may go, right? There are false apostles who come along saying, I've got a message. I'm going to give light 
You'll just ne- you've never heard this. The church at Ephesus was able to try them. They had proven all things and held fast that which was good as is commanded in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So they had tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them what? Liars. The apostle Paul, I mean, the Lord Jesus Christ says, you have proven that there are certain people coming in and telling you they're preaching the truth and you have proven and discerned and judged them to be liars. Well done. I told you, as a Christ, many people today have no idea you exist. Should you ever determine that somebody is a liar? Yeah, if they're lying. <laughs> if what they're preaching is not consistent with what God says, guess what they are? A liar. And so then, God commends them for proving, you got men that are preaching lies, and you've proved it out with my word. Good job. Well done. He's commending them. For their deeds, that's their works, their diligence, their labor and patience, their devotion. Their devotion is seen in their intolerance of evil. Their proving out of those who are false, who are not truly apostles and said they were. Their ability to bear burdens. Look what he says, verse 3. And hast borne and hast patience. Meaning patience is not something you only demonstrated. It's something you still have. Labor is not something you were doing. It's something you are doing. They had learned how to bear up under their cross, pick up their cross daily, and follow Him. They were willing to bear a burden for the Lord Jesus Christ. They were still patient. They were patiently waiting, enduring trials, enduring difficulties for the Lord's sake. What a wonderful church, would you agree? Amen. And so He says, And hast borne, hast patience, and for My name's sake hast labored. This is all speaking of their devotion. He said, You've not labored to make yourself a name, You've labored for my name's sake because I am the Savior, because I have purchased you. You've been willing to go through all of this for the sake of my name, for your love of me and for your loyalty to me. And he's commending them. He speaks of their deeds, that's their works, their diligence, their devotion, their durability. Notice what he says. And hast borne, verse 3, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. May I say this? Anybody that's doing this good should never be rebuked for anything. How many have ever been maybe by a parent, and if you didn't have a parent that was faithful to rebuke you, I feel sorry for you. <laughs> you weren't blessed. Honestly, uh, it's, it's a, a parent who won't reprove, rebuke, and chastise a child. The Bible says that parent hates the child. Uh, they, don't, they don't love them. But if you had a parent growing up that would rebuke you, how many of you, your logic ever worked like this? Why am I in trouble? I've been doing everything the way they told me. I mean, I got up this morning. I made my bed like I was supposed to. I cleaned up my room. I did this. I've been doing my chores. Why am I in trouble for? I'm the good kid around here. Now, there weren't a lot of those moments for me there for a while. But anyway, if you are being the good kid, you can get to the feeling that because of all the right I'm doing, I should not be rebuked. Maybe come to church, you say, man, I'm reading my Bible. I'm seeking the Lord in prayer. I'm trying to find the Lord's will. I'm being faithful at church. And then I come to church, and I'm told that I'm doing something wrong. What's up with that? Now, I understand we should not be a bunch of naysayers as preachers who are always just telling people what they do wrong. When people do right, they should be commended. But when we do wrong, we should be reproved. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. Amen? And it's not about the preacher anyway. It's about the word of the Lord. But the fact of the matter is... Uh, The Lord commends them for all these things. Let me just give you some verses to note, by the way, before we move on to the counsel of Christ. We're still dealing with what he comprehends about them. We've seen that he comprehends and commends them for their deeds, their diligence, their devotion, their durability. Thou hast not fainted. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 and 16, Paul talks about the grace they received from the Lord to not faint. 
to not faint. Galatians 6, 9, you're familiar with this. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we will reap if we faint not. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 says, For consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against yourself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. If you're going to run the race, people are going to contradict you. How do you get the idea that the Ephesian church had been contradicted? Obviously, by false prophets, by people that were evil. What's going to happen is you seek to serve the Lord, there are going to be people that are going to try to stop you. They're going to try to discourage you. They're going to make fun of you. They're going to frustrate your purpose. And what can happen is the contradiction, it doesn't say just of sin. It says, who endured such contradiction of sinners? You know what sinners are? They're people. And as you seek to serve the Lord, there are going to be times that your family is going to contradict you. There are going to be times your friends and co-workers are going to contradict you. You know what contradict means? I don't like the way you're going. I want to try to divert you and stop you. That's the way it works. And you know what happens? The contradiction of sinners can wear you out. And the Lord Jesus had said, but you've not. In the face of contradiction, in the face of labor, in the face of difficulty, you have not fainted. You know what that's saying? Verse 3 is all about the fact you have worked, you have labored, and you still are. Faint means quit. To fall over and say, I'm done. Every Christian, if you're going to serve the Lord, is going to have a point where you are tempted to stop obeying the Lord like you should. Where you're going to say, I know what the Lord wants me to do. I get an idea from His Word, what He expects of me, and I am tired. I am tired of opposing sin. I am tired of sin opposing me. I am tired of being a misfit. I am tired of difficulty. I am tired of doing right. Doing wrong would be easier. I quit. You don't mean I quit believing that Jesus is the Christ. Not that. If you're saved, you believe that. I'm just tired of being a disciple. I'm not tired of going to heaven. I'm tired of living on earth for Christ. (laughs) You know what the Ephesians had done? They said, not us. With blisters on our hands and our feet, we're going to hold to the plow and keep working. This is a faithful church. But then the Lord becomes to, he comes to his counsel and he begins with disapproval. All these wonderful things he said about them, he commends them for their deeds, of their works, their diligence, their labor and their patience, their devotion, their intolerance of evil, the proving out of those who are false and bearing the burden of faithfulness. Thou hast borne and hast labored for my name's sake their durability, and has not fainted. But then he says, here's my counsel, verse, verse, five, uh, verse 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. In the face of all these wonderful things that I got, and the word somewhat, a number of the other ones get something like this, I have a few things against thee. He doesn't say that to the church of Ephesus. So I've got somewhat against thee. There's a problem, and I'm going to address it. I'm going to express, I've expressed my commendation of you. Now I'm going to express my disapproval of something that I see in you. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast, and I've circled in my Bible, and if you're in the habit of marking your Bible, I'd encourage you to do the same. Thou hast left thy first love. How many have ever met a married couple and their marriage is on the rocks and they say something like this? We just don't love each other anymore. What they mean is the feelings I used to have, I don't have them anymore. You know, at some point in time, a decision was made not to maintain what they used to have. Love is left, especially love for Christ. Thou hast left. You know what? He didn't say they didn't have love for him. He said, thou hast left thy first love. We call it honeymoon love, that that first tender love. 
I watch people, and please don't, don't, don't get upset, but I watch people who, when they first saved, wouldn't hesitate to step out of a pew and come to an altar and kneel there, bow their knee and pray and confess something to the Lord and say, Lord, please help me. But now they've been saved a while, they wouldn't dream of it. I don't do that anymore. Why? Well, I just, it's a personal thing. What happened? So you mean going to the altar means you love the Lord? No, I'm talking about sensitivity to the Lord. I'm talking about the moment he shows me there's something that's displeasing to him. I so love him for what he did for me. I realize he died for me. I realize he saved me. And I just want to be sensitive to him. It wasn't that way in Ephesus anymore. Well, they were holding their ground. But their love for the Lord wasn't what it used to be. Say, why? They lost it. They left it. They left it. Meaning it was a decision to not maintain a tenderness of heart toward Christ that once they had had. And he said, this is a problem. You've left your first love. And so he gives his disapproval. Uh, and his declaration, he said, I have somewhat against thee, that's disapproval. His declaration, thou hast left thy first love, and then he's going to give them some direction. And the Lord alliterates it for us. He says in verse 5, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. He said, I want you to go back memory lane and remember where you used to be. You remember how you used to be tender toward me. You remember the love you used to have. Remember what, what the Lord Jesus said to Peter on the seashore? Simon, Peter, lovest thou me? The Lord Jesus knew the motivation factor for complete obedience without hesitation is love. It's love, meaning there's nothing the Lord would say to me at this point I would not do just to please him, just to please him. We can make the marriage analogy where when people are first married, there's a tenderness toward one another. But over time, going through hardships, if we're not careful, we get used to each other. We take one another for granted. We leave behind the appreciation for the other person. And thus this has happened with the church at Ephesus toward Christ. And I want to challenge you tonight. Do you have the love you first had when Christ first saved you? Do you have the sensitivity where you say others simply just need to know about him and how wonderful he is? Well, they do. But every time I try to tell somebody, people get mad at me anyway. You know what a stymied soul winning more than anything else? Not who Christ is, but how people react. Well, I don't, believe, I don't believe witnessing works like it used to. Of course it doesn't because we're not working it like we should. Amen? When we first got saved, who wouldn't you tell and did you care if they didn't like it? But there comes a time where we say, well, there's so many false professors. There's so many false teachers. There's so, many, so much aggravated response. There's so many cults. I've heard this. The cults are out there and they're acting like they're trying to win people to the Lord and we don't want to be thought of as a cult. You know where the focus is at? On people. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. That's still true. Does it really match something? Our going out and telling others who he is and what he's done, does it have anything to do with how they react? Do you have any evangelistic programs are being geared today based on how people respond? Because we've left our first love. Our first love said, I'll tell because of who he is, not because of who they are. May I say this, evangelism will cease when our focus simply is souls. We need to love souls, but we do this first because we love him. Amen? We use evangelism. How about our prayer life? Was there a time we say, you know what, I've missed three days of prayer? You know, there's a first love that says, I've got to speak to the Lord. I must. I must have him speak to me. I need his strength. I need his help. What happened is that first love had been left, and the Lord said, if you're going to have it back, you've got to remember you're not now where you used to be. The first step in getting help is acknowledging I have got something wrong. 
So what he says is, I want you to use the gift of remembrance that I've given you. Go back and ask yourself, do you appreciate me like you used to? Or have we just gotten used to being saved? Have we gotten used to the message of salvation? Have we gotten used to the fact that we are secure in Christ Jesus? Have we gotten used to the fact that if it weren't for His nail-scarred hands and if it weren't for His suffering in our place, we would still be hell-bound sinners? May I say something tonight? We must stir up the gift that's in us. Well, Paul said that to Timothy in the case of ministry. Of course he did. There was a gift and Paul said, you can't let that thing lie dormant. It's good for us. You know what? If you want to stir a marriage relationship, remember what it was like when you first loved each other. Remember how you were not okay with saying the unkind words you now say. And ask yourself, who changed here? What happened here? Remember when we first got saved, when we first were in love with Christ like we should be because we were so glad of what He did for us. And what Christ is saying is you must remember me. Remember from whence you fell. Remember where you used to be and where you are today. You ought to ask, when was the last time I wept because I disappointed Him, because I displeased Him? When was the last time it sorrowed me that the Lord would be displeased with me? When was the last time a message was preached and because the word of Christ was communicated through that message, my heart was moved to make a change for him because I love him. And so then he said, remember from whence thou art fallen. Then what does he say? And repent. Meaning you've got to change the way you think. Repentance is ultimately changing the way we think to be in agreement with God. This is why repentance and faith are inseparable. If I believe, if the Lord Jesus said you've left your first love, do you think the Ephesians thought they'd left their first love? I don't think so, or he wouldn't have had to tell them. <laughs> and so he has to tell them you've left your first love. They're being challenged to consider I'm not where I'm supposed to be. See what they need to do? What he tells five out of seven of his churches to do. Repent. Adjust what you think about yourself, not to the way you feel or think, but to what I say. Yeah, I've told you you've left your first love. Remember, if you'll remember, you'll know that what I'm saying to you is true. And then you need to repent. You need to go back to where you were. You've gotten a thinking that has chilled you toward me, chilled your love toward me. Repent, and then there must be restoration. What is he saying? Remember from whence thou art fallen, uh, and, and repent. And then what is he saying? Do the first works. Remember the first thing he said? I know thy... You know what works are? My practical response to his commands. That's it. He says, do the first works. When you read Mark 14, 38, go pray. Don't read Mark 14, 38 and say, well, it's just difficult to pray. The world we live in, it's hard to find time. You used to meditate in his law day and night because you, before someone taught you that's legalism to apply Old Testament text and New Testament living, you used to let that affect you. And now you are such a scholar, you no longer, you realize, no, no one's going to put a Bible reading regimen on my life. I won't be bound by such a thing. Is that why you started reading your Bible in the first place? Do you know when I started reading my Bible, when God broke my heart and I, and, I, and I became very much to love him for what he had done for me? There was a season where I was cool toward him. As a teenager, I was focused. It wasn't so much because I was a teenager, because I was a fool. I got focused on sinners. I got focused on my sin and what I wanted. I got focused on people and their failures. And I got hard-hearted and bitter. And I closed my Bible and went long periods of time without reading my Bible. Oh, I heard it preached. I was familiar with it. I can quote you verse after verse. 
But when the Lord got a hold of my heart and said, I died for you and I have saved you, why are you treating me like this? Okay, that person may have failed you and that person may have failed and that person may be a hypocrite, but what have I done? From that night, my Bible reading changed and has never gone back. You know why I started reading my Bible like I should? I had when I was first got saved. But you know what got me back into it? It wasn't somebody pounding my head saying, thou shalt read thy Bible. It was the author dealt with my heart and said, why are you neglecting what I have to say? Amen? You know what somebody says? You ought to sing up in church. Well, we don't sing up in church. Pastor will gripe at me. You'll never sing up in church until you fall in love with the one we're singing about. I remember. I remember the way I sang in church changed after my heart got right with my Savior. It wasn't, well, here we go through those drab old hymns again. Anytime I hear somebody railing on the hymns, I think, you just need to get right with God. Honestly, you say, boy, that's narrow-minded, Pastor. I know, I'm narrow-minded. But it's factual. Tell me what's wrong with these old hymns that exalt the Savior. The only reason you rail on them is you want something to please your flesh because you have no spiritual appetite. You have no spiritual appetite because you don't love the Savior. I mean, that's it. And then what was going on here? He said, remember from whence thou art fallen, repent, and do the first works. God deals with your heart. Step out, lose your pride, go bow your knee at the altar. It won't kill anybody. I've heard people preach against having altar calls. I understand that. You're trying to coerce people into making decisions. You know why most people won't make a trip to the altar? It'll hurt their pride. If I leave, someone will think God spoke to me and I needed to get something right. Right? I mean, come on. Can we not be honest? Going to an altar doesn't get you right. But if I'm staying in the pew because I'm proud, then that's wrong too. You with me? Do do the first works. What does he mean? Does Does he articulate them? I'm just throwing some examples at you that a lot of times when people are first saved, man, they want to read their Bible. Man, they want to memorize Scripture. Man, they want to tell somebody else about what Christ has done for them. Who can I pray for? Pastor, what can I do? Is there church work to be done at the church? The church belongs to Christ. I love him. Can I work at church? I remember Chris King telling me when he first got saved, he said, he went to somebody in the church and said, can I be a trustee? And they're like, nah, not yet. How about do this? And they gave him something else to do. Do you know what he wanted to do? He wanted to work. He wanted to serve God. That's where we were when we first get saved, the first love. If that's not there, we can say, well, that's normal. It's not normal. It's wrong. Does God expect veteran Christians to be as sensitive and tender to him as baby Christians? Absolutely. But you know what often stymies the growth of a baby Christian? A cold veteran. A battle-hardened veteran who has realized Christians make mistakes, Christians will hurt you, churches will hurt you, but Christ never has. So remember who you're not loving. It's him. You with me tonight? Remember from whence thou art fallen. Repent and do the first works. And then he gives them a determination. This can seem harsh, but listen to what he says. Verse 5, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else. This almost sounds threatening. Have you ever said, you do this or else? So he says, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. If you do not take heed to what I'm saying to you, I'll shut you down. It's his prerogative, isn't it? You know how many Bible-believing, Bible-preaching churches there are in Ephesus today? The last I heard, zero. At some point in time, they said, we're not going to be as sensitive to the word of our Savior. And their candlestick was removed. You know what? You go to Great Britain. There was a time in Great Britain the churches were just like what we've read described here. In the days of Charles Spurgeon, great. There were some great preachers in Great Britain in the 1800s. Oh, 
You hear some of them. You, it's amazing to me. I read some guys. They were they are they were uh, they were Church of England guys, and they sound like they're fundamental Baptists. I mean, they love the book. They preach God's word. I mean, man, look. I mean, you could walk into many a church in the in 19th century Great Britain and hear the word of God thundered. Today, you're hard pressed to find a place where it's even allowed. You know what happened? You hear me well. You know what's going on in America right now? God's taking candlesticks away. You know why? Because we're so focused on people, on the culture, on ourselves, and we've left our first love. And I know that's not true in every church, but it's a warning to every church. And no doubt it's a warning to every individual. He says, I will come and remove thy candlestick unless you repent. And so then, how long? He said, how long did he give him? I, I don't know. You could study history. We could see that's up to him. He's long-suffering. He's patient. But he's warning them, I will remove it. Wouldn't it be a sad day after the great work that God's done in Bonner's Ferry to plant a candlestick here? For someone to say, man, I live in Boundary County, but I can't find anywhere that I can hear God's word taught and preached and help me serve Christ because the church got shut down. Wouldn't it be a sad thing? You know really who that's, whose hands that is in? Us. Are we going to love our Savior like we should? And then finally, his consolation. He goes back to commending them again. Just this one thing. I have someone against thee. Verse 6. Is here, here's his consolation, verses 6 and 7. We're almost done. He that, uh, excuse me, but this thou hast. He said, you got this. I'm going to give you one more commendation before I'm done here. This thou hast that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He'll mention the Nicolaitans again in another church. Later, he'll mention the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. How many of you know that doctrine and deeds, they go together? What I believe determines what I do or will not do. And so here he says, here's something else I got that's, that's in your favor. You hate something. <laughs> the Lord did not know what boundaries he was stepping out of all those thousands of years ago and had this pen. You don't hate anything. The only thing you hate is people who are clear in judgment and discernment and hate and judge. And then you hate them and that's okay. How I many you know Jesus didn't say, this thou hast that thou hatest the Nicolaitans? No, that's not what he said. This thou hast that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. When the Nicolaitans rolled into town and started their work, you know what Jesus Christ said? I hate that. You know, there's some some behavior in churches we ought to hate. There There are people who move into a church. The best we can do with the word Nicolaitans is break it down according to what it means. And it means, so the, 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 the first part of this word, uh, Nikolai, means to overcome, to overcome. And so in essence, Nicolaitan means overcoming the people, to overcome the people. It's very interesting. He says, this thou hast, thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the, uh, what, what the Spirit saith unto the churches, to him that overcometh. Meaning, I hate the deeds of those that are coming in overcoming you. They're conquering you. There are people whose aim is to overcome God's people. They are disobeying First Peter chapter 5 when God told the elders that are among them, be an example of the flock, but you're not to be lords over God's heritage. May I say this very expressly from the scripture, whether a teacher in the church or a pastor in the church or even a deacon if you're holding a position of service, it is never the job to figure out how to position yourself to conquer people and make them do what you want. I had a pastor friend, he said years ago, I had a young pastor to pastor me, he said, how do I get the people to do what I want them to do? And all the older pastors laughed. <laughs> That's not your job. Your job is to teach them to do what the Lord wants them to do. 
It's not your job to control people's lives. It's your job to lead them to let the Lord control their lives, to show them that the Lord is worthy, to teach them how to trust and follow and obey Him. But there are people who are control personalities. And by the way, every person has the temptation to control other people's lives. Well, not me. Well, yes, you, me, all of us. And we use different means to do it. It's called manipulation. I want something out of you, and I'll figure out how to leverage things to get from you what I want to make my life better. But here's what the Nicolaitans apparently did. They came in and taught in a way where they took over people's lives. If you look at how Catholicism functions today, you can find its roots in Nicolaitanism. It's where you had the clergy and the laity, as you would understand, separating the laity being the people. Nicolaitans overcoming the people. You know what? The way that Christ overcomes you is through your willing surrender to him. Amen? And our victory is in submission to him. But there were those who came in and saw the church as a political agency. We watched in the southeast Freemasonry, and those who were part of it would come in, and they would take control of a church. They would control the people. They would use the church as a vehicle for their own ends and means and purposes to promote them in the community, uh, to promote their agenda in the community, to use the monies of the churches to promote their programs, their agendas. They would conquer these churches I remember the, one of the churches my dad pastored, uh, a pastor took over that, and he understood the, 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 the devilish nature of Freemasonry, preached on it. In one week, he had 13 families leave the church, all Masons. And they went and started another church, and years later, they were having fistfights on their front porch. I kid you not. <laughs> now, I thank God. That church got freed from that. But this is the kind of thing the Lord's dealing with. He said, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Those who would come in and lord over God's heritage. We see it even today. Many times fellowships are formed so strong personalities can control churches, control people, and set up earthly institutions and organizations for the glory of men, not the glory of God. And so then the Lord praises them in verse 6 for the fact they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. He said, you see what the Nicolaitans are doing? You hate that. I hate that. We're on the same page. Verse 7, he that hath an ear... And by the way, that's going to be repeated over and over. The Lord Jesus said it in his ministry on earth. You know what he's saying? If you've got an ear that can hear. Now, why would he say that? This is a key phrase in our Bible we need to pay attention to. Brady and I were having a conversation this week just briefly about the Bible. And I said, I'm convinced as much as I'm standing here that the only way you're going to get the message of the Bible is if you approach it with a truly submitted heart and will. Otherwise, you know why there's so much confusion over what the Bible means today? People act like, you know, there's Christians act like, the only thing you can know for sure is how to be saved. Outside of that, everybody's confused because it's just, you know, it's not clear. No, 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 no. No, no, no. The Bible says uh, that, that knowledge is easy to him that understandeth. Jesus said, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether I speak of myself or be of God. And so how we approach the Bible, the condition of the heart determines the nature of the ear. The Lord Jesus says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Meaning, listen closely to the Holy Spirit. There's a message for you here. To him that overcometh, here's his promise. To him that overcometh, will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. You remember what happened in the Garden of Eden? Eve and Adam were overcome. They were overcome by believing a lie rather than believing the truth. The opposite is true here. The Lord Jesus says, when you believe my word, you're an overcomer. And when you overcome, instead of losing access to the tree of life, what Adam lost for you in the garden, I give you access to through faith in me. 
right? Uh, let's give a few verses in closing on what it means to overcome. Look at Revelation 12, 11. Re- Overcoming, we think of it from the fleshly sense. Well, hang in there, do your best, endure to the end. Overcoming is by faith in Jesus Christ. Who is he that overcometh, whosoever is is born of God? We'll read that in a moment, 1 John chapter 4 and chapter 5. Revelation 12, 11 says, And they overcame him, talking about the devil, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, what Christ did for them, and by the word of their testimony. So what Jesus had done and their personal faith in him. The word of their testimony is, We confess that Jesus is the Christ, our faith is in his shed blood. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Because their faith was in Christ and not in themselves, they were faithful and overcame the temptations of the devil. First John chapter 4, verse 4, and First John chapter 5, verse 4, and then we're done. First John 4, 4 speaks of victory. First John 4, 4, year of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. First John chapter 5 uh, verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Could the Word of God be plainer on how we overcome? Do we, over, do we overcome by personal persistence or by faith? By faith. And that will result in persistence, no doubt but it's faith in the Son of God. Every born-again person is an overcomer. Amen? No doubt. And the Lord says to the overcomer, there's a promise, and that's you'll have access to the tree of life. You'll live forever. And there are some of the warnings he's having. He's not threatening to take away their salvation. That's not it. What he's saying is you'll lose your influence. You want to take away the candlestick is? You lose your light. So if you don't listen to me, you don't repent. The life flow of a church is in its proper response to the Savior. And so tonight... We see the church at Ephesus. Boy, there's so many things here. We want to be like them. Amen? But you know, when we hold to the truth, I'll just say this in closing. When you hold to the truth as they had done, and you go through the rigors of standing for what is right and the contradiction of sinners, you know what the temptation is? Callousness. Hardness. And you know what? What often happens is the contradiction of sinners gets us callous toward the Savior. Because we're suffering for his name's sake, our love for him chills. And the Lord says, don't do that. You remember from whence you're fallen. Repent and do the first works. May I say this tonight? If you're not doing the first works of a first love Christian, we need some repentance. Amen? If we are, keep that first love kindled. He's worthy of that. Amen? Mm -hmm.